Uh, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. My name is Abby Odio, and I am the pastor of college and career here at Bethany Greenlake. Um, would you join me in prayer as we uh, prepare our hearts to look at this text this morning? Father God, we are grateful um, for these words that are not just words, but um, are loaded with meaning and power and direction and life. And so God, as we um, pause and take a moment to observe them, um, we ask that we would not only learn, but that we would be changed, that we would be shaped, that we would be transformed um, by your power um, to be people who, who are indeed clothed in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been working uh, through this series, uh, through the book of Romans, called um, The Way Forward is the name of the series. And really, we're getting at this question, what does it mean to be the people of God living in the day that we do, living in the times that we do, um, in the moment in history in which we find ourselves? And as we all know well, our chapter in history is marked at present in some significant ways um, by hostility and division and anger. And as we also know, one of the spaces where this is perhaps the most evident is in kind of this social media um, sphere. I was reading an article a few weeks ago that talked about the conundrum that um, this sort of division has caused tech companies like Instagram, like Facebook, because each of these platforms has a strong commitment to keeping hateful content off of their site, and yet they find themselves in this predicament because the sheer number of posts um, with such content has exceeded their ability to regulate it. In other words, bad postings are going up faster than they can pull them down. So in response to this problem, YouTube and Facebook both announced they will hire 10,000 new employees each. Um, and the, the jobs of these folks will simply be to go through these postings uh, that have been tagged as harmful for whatever reason. But this is their solution to better police this kind of online ecosystem. Now, attached to this article was a uh, photo, and this is what really caught my eye initially, um, was a photograph that had a caption that explained this was the Facebook war room. So anytime there's a problem, everyone in the company comes to this room. And seated around the table um, with these puzzled looks were all of these engineers and tech folks trying to come up with the right algorithm or the right code to solve what is a very human heart problem. And while I absolutely believe they're putting, uh, they're attempting to solve an important problem, a part of me felt a little hopeless on their behalf because, again, there's a much deeper thing happening that the right algorithm or the right code will simply never be able to solve. Now, part of the reason I start with that story is because there is a thematic overlap of sorts um, with the words Paul writes in the second half of Romans 13. Paul's letter to the Romans is written to a divided church, like us living in divided times. In particular, you have Jews and Gentiles very much at odds about the right way to move forward. And there's all sorts of conflicts that are arising around the particulars about regarding how people are supposed to act. Now, as we've seen, Paul doesn't shy away from addressing those particulars. Last weekend, Richard um, spoke about uh, the first part of Romans 13, where Paul addresses how Christians are to engage with the government. Next week, he'll teach on Romans 14, which moves us into the territory of sort of interpersonal dynamics. 
but nestled between these two important exhortations, which get um, to the specific, talk about the specifics of behavior, nestled between these two teachings is this crucial reminder that we not forget our fundamental calling that will actually inform all of that. And as we grapple with what it means to be the church today in similarly divided times, there's a powerful invitation that this text extends to us back to that same fundamental calling. The Apostle Paul says it this way. He says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the entire law. And he goes on, he elaborates, he names four of the Ten Commandments, all of which have to do with how we relate to others. And then he says, really, all of these commands might be summed up in a single commandment, which is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Here's what love is. Love does no wrong to one's neighbor. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, if you're anything like me, it's easy to read these words and to sort of quickly move beyond them. Right? We know um, kind of on this intellectual level that love matters to God, that love is mandated by God. And yet, so many of us, myself included in this, we enter easily into this severe preoccupation with externals, with behaviors, before grounding ourselves in this posture that Paul says is the most important thing. And if we're not careful, We can end up like the Facebookers in the war room, a bit puzzled, a bit exhausted, a bit bitter as a church because we've tried to address a behavior instead of leaning more deeply into this fundamental transformation of self that Paul here articulates. Um, As I've been reading and just kind of thinking about the text this week, I was thinking about how rare it is a thing for us to consider the question, since you said yes to God, have you become more loving? Like, think about that. Have you grown in the last year in your ability to really love your neighbor? Have you grown in your ability to love your enemy? And I don't ask these questions to shame any of us, nor do I ask them to de-emphasize the importance of certain conversations that are happening now on a cultural level that very, very much matter to the heart of God. Don't mishear me. I ask that question instead to help us pause and consider these words to bring us back to the right level of conversation. Words that are easy to hear, but difficult to live, difficult to embody. So what exactly is the nature of this calling to love? How do we live into it? What impact does our calling have? These are the three questions you'll see um, on the bulletin you were handed as you came in this morning, and they're really going to frame our time today as we look more deeply at this text. So the first question is this, what is our calling as it's articulated here in chapter 13? And here's how Paul answers that question for us. He says, our calling is to be people who embody agape love. That's the starting place. That's it. I know many of you will be familiar with that Greek word agape. Um, We see it, it appears multiple times in our passage today. It's translated as the word love. And there are many definitions out there which attempt to sort of get at the nuances of this word. But one I found helpful comes from uh, the theologian Dallas Willard. He said it this way. He said, agape is the overall condition of the self poised to promote the goods of human life that are within its range of influence. Now, I know that's a mouthful. Another way of saying it, um, to be a person of agape is to be a person who loves, um, who wills the good of another, who advocates for the flourishing of those people, of any people, um, whom your life and your choices will have an effect. 
Now, right away, you'll notice there are a few things that are missing from this definition. For one, agape love is not ultimately concerned with how our actions make another person feel. That's not to say that feelings aren't a valid part of our human experience, but sometimes willing the best for another person will mean causing that person pain. That's just the way it works. I have a one-year-old son. I get this really well right now. He has an inexplicable love for cleaning supplies. I don't know where that came from. We've never let him play with cleaning supplies. Um, But if he so much as spots a cleaning bottle, like a spray bottle, or we even open the cupboard in which such bottles are stored, he goes absolutely nuts. And um, we're hoping one day this translates into a real love for cleaning. I'll keep you posted. But in the meantime, and much to his dismay, we keep those bottles out of reach. While this does not make him feel good, it is the loving thing to do. Second observation is that agape is not a sentimental display. Like, this is not The Bachelor on Monday night. I don't know where that came from. I don't watch The Bachelor often. Um, But this is not a sentimental display. It's not so much a feeling about another person as it is a posture towards them like a way of relating that isn't dictated by our emotions, but as by our overall disposition as a person. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul makes this clear when he reminds Timothy that agape love comes from a good heart. Now, it's really important that we understand here, in the Greco-Roman world, the heart was understood to be the very center, the very core of a human being. It was the heart, it was the part of the self that directs every thought a person has, every action a person takes. So effectively here, Paul is saying, both my ability to love or my lack of ability to love has nothing to do with how another person makes me feel. It has nothing to do with how good or bad I perceive their behavior to be and everything to do with one reality and one reality only, and that is the state of my heart, the state of that which directs all that comes out of me. If a person came to Paul and said, you know, I just can't love so-and-so because of A, B, or C. You know, they're conservative. I'm a Democrat. They're a Jew. I'm a Gentile. They're a 49ers fan. I root for the Seahawks. Whatever it may be. Um, Paul's response would have been this. You've missed the point. (laughs) Like, you're working on the wrong level here. The question is not, how do I love this particular person, but rather, how do I become the kind of person who maintains this overall disposition of love, who actually embodies agape love, and then allows that to inform your action? That's our calling. A while back, I was, uh, some of our friends have a daughter. She was four years old. I was babysitting her for the night, and um, uh, this particular four-year-old was going through a phase where she was obsessed with unicorns. Maybe there's some parents in the room that understand this. Um, but I bought her, uh, because I'm not beyond, you know, uh, earning my way into the hearts of children. I bought her a little unicorn dress up, like costume set, right? Came with like the band and the horn and these things that went over your hands and turned them into hooves. And she loved it. She loved it. We played for hours with that. And then, um, eventually it was time to go to bed. And I said to her, you know, Micah, you're going to have to take off the costume. Like you're going to have to take the unicorn stuff off. It's time to take a bath and whatnot. And she looked at me as though I had just like crushed her little six-year-old soul. And she said, Auntie Abby, I can't take my hoofs off. This is just who I am now. (laughs) Now, I know it's a funny example, but this experience sort of illustrates what Paul's getting at here. In Colossians chapter 3, after rounding out his teaching, he instructs the church, above all else, everything else, put on love. 
He could have said, above all else, do loving things, but Paul wants them to understand it goes deeper than that. God desires that you become a loving person transformed at the core of your being so that we can't turn love off. It's just who we are now. Last week, Richard told the story of the French town called Les Chambon where citizens risked their lives to save some uh, 3,500 Jewish refugees who came there during the war. And the leader of this effort was a local pastor named Andre Trachme and his wife Megda. And several years after the war ended, there was a team that returned to Les Chambon to make a, a documentary about this little town and what they had done. Um, And it's an amazing film. I highly recommend it. But one of the most moving bits of the whole thing was when filmmakers asked Megda Trachme, they said to her, you know, what compelled you to do this? Like, why did you risk your lives and, and take these people in? And what fascinated me the most was not how she answered that question, but rather how confused she was by the question itself. Truly, she, she looked, kind of looked puzzlingly at them and they repeated, repeated the question a few times and she, she finally just said, you know, I don't know what you mean. Why are you asking me this? As though to say, we were doing what our natural duty was to do in that moment. In other words, I can't take this off. I cannot do anything else to become a people who naturally embody agape love. That's the calling. And in some ways, understanding this calling on sort of an intellectual level is the easiest part. The harder part gets at this next question, which is this, how do we actually do this? How do we become people who don't come to our enemies and try to love them, but we come to our enemies as a loving person? Paul clarifies that this process is both active and passive. Active in that there's a part we participate in and passive in that there's a part that only God can do. As we continue in Romans 13, we come to verse 12 where we read this. The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now you'll notice there's an activity here. There's something as followers of Christ we are very much invited to do. Uh, Dallas Willard says grace is opposed to earning not effort. In other words, we have to show up and do something, and though our efforts are not what bring about transformation, it's also true that if we do nothing, we will not be transformed. That's how it works. One of the greatest examples of this in Scripture is the story of Moses. Many of you will know um, the book of Exodus, where God calls Moses to go to Egypt and set free people, God's people, who are being enslaved by Pharaoh. God is essentially calling Moses to embody this love, to go and to will the best for the Israelites by freeing them from this oppressive system. It's also worth noting that he's uh, calling Moses to will the best for Pharaoh, who is living with this false and destructive sense of his own godlikeness. But after receiving this calling from God, it becomes immediately clear that there are things standing between Moses and his calling. There are things keeping Moses from embodying this sort of agape love. God essentially says, go, be love. And Moses in return says, I can't, I'm afraid. Not only am I afraid, I'm insecure. Not only am I insecure, I have significant doubts. And then this scene culminates with God instructing Moses to do this very strange thing. He asked Moses, what is it that you're holding in your hand? And Moses was a, a shepherd, so he was holding a staff. And God instructs Moses, throw it on the ground. Now I want to pause momentarily and acknowledge that This reality that we all have things in our lives that keep us from embodying agape love. Um, We all have those things. And like Moses, we are called, as we're called to deeper levels of loving, 
we will be confronted with deeper levels of our own pain and brokenness as people. Moses could love his sheep all day without ever having to entertain certain fears, without ever having to confront his attachment to security over and above the good of an entire people group, without ever having to examine his own pride. It's not until God calls Moses to this higher level of loving that certain blind spots become painfully apparent for him. I was recently uh, doing some premarital work with an engaged couple. And uh, like many couples, they have some stuff they were working through. And so we sat down for, you know, their first session. And I said, so guys, how's it going? Like, tell me what's going on. And the woman jumped in and responded. I so appreciated her honesty. She said, you know, it's been really good and, and also really hard. She said, I'm learning a lot about myself. Uh, for one, I didn't know I had it in me to be so mean. And uh, her fiance jumped in and said, yeah, same here. I've been learning so much. I didn't realize she could be so mean. (laughs) Now, I love that story for a lot of reasons. And believe me, they both had some things they needed to work on. Um, But the reason I tell it is because it gets at this reality. It reveals this truth that our attempts to love well and to love more deeply will often lead to difficult self-discovery. Right? Whether it be a spouse or a roommate or a coworker or a group of people or one of your children, we will encounter these internal barriers that inhibit our calling. Um, fear that keeps us from speaking truth and love when the truth needs to be spoken. Lust that reduces another person to a commodity and inhibits real intimacy. Insecurity in our own sense of self that causes us to triangulate, to speak about another person when we should be speaking to them. A people-pleasing nature that keeps me from setting boundaries where I should set boundaries. An ego that has caused me to implicitly or subconsciously see my life as having somehow more value than the life of another person or group of people. The list goes on. And there comes this crucial moment when we recognize those things in ourselves that we can go one of several different ways. And what we actively choose to do in this moment will determine the depth of our own transformation. We can respond with apathy and just ignore whatever comes up. This will most likely lead to a life of bitterness, resentment, anger, cynicism, things that do not make for the full life. We can grit our teeth and try to get over it. And while that might work for a season, you know, it might get us through a particular moment. It won't lead to an internal transformation of our core, of our heart. Or, like Moses, we can notice this We can name it and then consciously and actively make a point of laying it down. Notice what happens when Moses takes what he's holding in his hand, literally a staff, but figuratively a lot of fear, a lot of self-doubt, a lot of his own pride. What happens when he takes that and is willing to lay it down? There's an immediate transformation that happens. The staff becomes a snake. It becomes something entirely different than that which it was before. And then God says to him, Moses, pick it up again. Moses does, and the snake turns back into a staff. Now, here is what I want us to see in this. Moses lays down what he has, but God transforms it in a way that only God can transform. And Moses picks that staff back up, but having surrendered and undergone this transformation, he is different. He is changed. Still imperfect, to be sure, but more equipped now to go in love, to will the best for Israel the way that God has called him to do. See, if, if we go back to our passage from Romans 13, Paul wraps up this, um, his teaching with this imperative. He says this, instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
See, the active part of our calling is this putting aside, right? Is that hard work of seeing that which in me, which is withholding me, which is keeping me from loving. But the passive part of this calling is to receive into that space from Christ the only thing which will set me free from this perpetual brokenness, which will set me free in order that I may love. When the agape love of God comes into contact with my surrendered jealousy or a tendency towards self-protection or my deep hurt that's causing me to keep hurting others, there I find I am met by a God who is the embodiment of agape itself. That means one who is forever willing my good, who went to the cross as if to say there is nothing, there is nothing that I won't do. And if I allow that brokenness to lead me back to God like Moses and like Paul and like so many people who came into contact with the person of Jesus, friends, we begin to change. We, be, we begin to change at our core. Those things which are impeded our ability to love no longer have a hold on us in the same way. We're free. This is the gospel. St. Augustine said it this way, love slays what we have been that we may be what we were not. And this transformation, it happens not, not by direct effort, not by trying harder, but rather by putting in place the conditions out of which agape can take root in me and then flow out of me. This is why Paul in this text is de-emphasizing the law, as if to say, don't focus on the behavior, but tend to the core of yourself from which your actions come. Lay aside the things of darkness. Put yourself in the place to receive agape. That's what you do. Love slays what we have been, that we may be what we were not. I'll never forget about five years ago now, I experienced this dynamic in a deeply personal way. Um, I was going through some just Difficult things, I had a health scare that caught me off guard in my um, mid-20s. I um, was leading a ministry that I just felt like I was in over my head. I was ill-equipped to leave and lead, and all of this sort of um, was surfacing in some bitterness and fear in my spirit. And during this season, I was also part of this pastor's group um, that would meet once a month to sort of tend our own spiritual wellness. So it's a Tuesday night, we're having one of these meetings, and the topic is all along the lines of this very same agape love, right? That's what we're diving into. And following the teaching, we were given some space to go and pray and think about this idea. And during that time of reflection, all this bitterness and really this anger is just welling up in me, right? And I'm fiercely kind of spilling this out in my notebook. And at the end of my angry rant of a prayer, um, I write these verbatim words directed to God. I say, if you really love me, tell me in a way I can hear it. I wrote that. And um, that was Tuesday night. Now fast forward 24 hours to the following evening. I'm at church uh, where I was wrapping up one of our midweek programs. And this woman I'd never seen before, she came up to me and she said, Abby, we haven't met. This is my second week here. Um, and I, I think God has something that I'm supposed to tell you. Now, I grew up Presbyterian, and God speaks through committees and, you know, votes, but God doesn't speak through other people. Like, that's a very uncomfortable thing. I'm working on it. Um, but I said, okay, okay, what is it? And she said, you know, I thought I was supposed to tell you last week, and I, it was my first week, and this never happens to me before, so I was feeling kind of embarrassed about it, and I'm just like, get it out already, you know, get it out. And, um, but she looks at me, and she said, Abby, I... I think you need to know that God loves you. And I think I'm supposed to tell you that. And I, um, 
I was so relieved initially that that's what it was. And also, it was a little awkward, and I said, oh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, okay, well, see you next week. And um, she was this shorter gal. She had this Eastern European accent. I'll never forget, blonde hair. And she put her arms up on my shoulders, and she looked me right in the eye, and she said, no, Abby, I, I think you really need to hear this. Like, God, God loves you. And... Um, I tell that story not to say that's always how God speaks. Nothing like that has happened to me before or since. Um, But I have to tell you, in that moment, I felt this profound sense of lifting, of freedom. (laughs) Like, you don't have to be afraid, fail at this job or fail in the eyes of so-and-so. Like, there's this God who's infinitely for you. Like, you can let go of that bitterness and that jealousy you're holding on to, God's in your corner. (laughs) And don't mishear me, this isn't a version of the prosperity gospel. God's agape posture towards us isn't um, like this guarantee that somehow things in our life are going to work out exactly the way we want them to work out. That's not it at all. What it is is this confidence that we have, this freedom we have when we begin to trust that there's a God who's willing our ultimate good. So one of the key questions for us today is this, are you actively surrendering and passively receiving God's agape love? Like, are you day by day growing in your trust of that love? This is such an important question, friends, because how we answer it will determine the depth and the power of our own transformation, will determine the degree to which we are able to live into our calling as a people who are called by God. So that brings me to the final question around calling that Paul addresses in this passage, which is this, what is the impact of our calling? The answer is this, we become people who wake before the day. We become people who wake before the day. Now let me say a little bit more about that. Um, Again, Paul's exhortation in verses 11 and 12 say this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far, far gone and the day is near. Now, if you read that text closely, it can be a bit confusing because Paul says the night is far gone and the day is near, um, which if it's not day and it's not night, then what is it? Well, we know that this is a direct reference to Jesus' resurrection, right? Jesus overcame sin, he overcame death, he overcame darkness, and therefore the night is gone and we have confidence in that, and yet we still live in this time of broken people, broken ways, broken systems, right? We see that externally, but we also see it internally. We wait for the day when all will be made new, but right now we exist in this in-between space. Um, And Paul says, now this space is the time for Christians to wake and embody agape by putting on Christ, literally the time to wake and dress ourselves with Christ. That's what the Greek says. Now I want to say a bit here about that word time, because in our kind of modern Western context, we tend to think of time very chronologically, like time as it appears on our watch or on our clocks. But when Paul uses the word time in this context, he's not talking about time as we generally think about it. Paul uses a specific Greek word, kairos, which alludes to time that is not measured in minutes or hours, but rather in significance and meaning. Like, biblically speaking, kairos time is when a bit of heaven indwells on earth. Like, a bit of the way God would have the world be comes here. The author and poet Madeline Lingle, she says it this way, when we touch on kairos time, 
We are freed from the normal restrictions of chronological time because a particular Kairos experience will have eternal impact. In other words, there are these moments in our lives, and we've all had them, of eternal impact. And Paul is saying, this will be your impact. Though it is dark, you who are clothed now in this agape of Christ will wake and live in such a way that a Kairos moment, they will be happening all around you. Like where you go, you will bring a little bit of this heaven here on earth. When a person is able to break free from a cycle of addiction, that's Kairos. When a child is made to understand a value and worth, that's Kairos. When the evil and demonic system of race is named for what it is and challenged, that's Kairos. Broken families reconciling. A lonely person finding community. When you're able to show up for your roommate in a conversation and be a listening, loving presence, that's Kairos. And this, this is the impact of people who wake before the day. A while back, I heard a, a radio story that is a compelling example of both the form and the impact of this sort of agape love. Uh, the story just recently aired, but it, was, it happened in 1991 uh, when a rabbi and his family moved to the town of Lincoln, Nebraska. He, had, um, he and his wife had five children, and the day after they moved in, the phone rang, and there was an anonymous voice on the other end um, just kind of hurling racial slurs at this man who had answered the phone, calling him Jew boy, uh, quite violently insisting that he and his family leave town immediately. The next day, a package arrived at the rabbi's home. It contained anti-Semitic materials and an unsigned card that read, the KKK is watching, you scum. There was a man in the community named Larry Trapp who was the leader of the local KKK chapter, and everybody knew this, and the rabbi trapped down um, his phone number because he was guessing that the threats were coming from this man. And once a week, the rabbi would pick up his phone and make a point to call Larry. Larry never answered on the other end, so every week the rabbi would leave a message, always words of encouragement and love. He would say things like, there's a lot of love out there, Larry, and you're not getting any of it. Don't you want some? Then he'd hang up. The next week, he'd call again and leave another message. She would offer to drive um, Larry to pick up his groceries because Larry had had both legs amputated as a result of some health stuff. This went on for months, no answer, but Rabbi Weezer kept at it. Then late one night, the rabbi's phone rang, and it was Larry Trapp. And Larry simply said, I want to get out of what I'm doing, but I don't know how. That night, the rabbi and his wife drove to Larry's home. They spent three hours speaking with the KKK leader, and a friendship formed. Over the next several months, Mr. Trapp left the clan. He made public apologies to those who he had harmed. When Larry's health worsened, he moved into the rabbi's home and he was cared for by Rabbi Weezer and his family until his eventual death, which took place in their home. The very same home he had sent those words of hate, he died surrounded and embraced in love and friendship. I love this story because it shows in this very overt way the transformative nature of agape love when it gets a hold of us when it gets a hold of our community. In the same way Christ transformed, we now become these transforming agents, these Kairos people who wake before the dawn. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus looks to a crowd of his followers and he asks them this question. He says, do you know how to interpret the present time? And again, the time word there is that Kairos word. Essentially, Jesus is saying to his followers, do you not know that my presence among you is literally heaven come to earth? Like, do you see that? It's not just some 
good teaching. It's not just a feel-good message. Literally, heaven come to earth. And as I read these words from Luke, I can't help but picture Jesus standing before the church of the 21st century, standing before our church, asking that very same question, do you not know how to interpret the present time? It's not about coming to church and then trying to be a better person the rest of the week, though coming to church is a really good thing to do. It's not about saying yes to God to get into heaven and then going on with life just kind of the same as it was before. Friends, this is about God coming in the person of Christ, embodying agape love towards us, making possible a deep soul transformation so that we can be these Kairos people, so that we can then be these transforming people. And this reality, this journey, it will always lead us back to this very special meal of communion that we'll share together in just a moment. This calling that we have to embody love, to put on Christ, is predicated first on our ability to receive from Christ that which he freely gives. I think of those words that I wrote in my notebook, um, saying to God, if you really love me, tell me in a way that I can hear. And in a way, the cross, God giving us his body, his life, was his way of saying, let me give it to you in a way you'll hear it. My very life given for you. And so in these next moments, I'm going to invite our um, servers to come on forward now. But as we come to this table, as we receive from Christ that which only Christ can give, I'd invite you to reflect on this question. Is there something in your life, in your heart today that you're aware of that's impeding your ability to love in the way that God loved? Do some of that hard self-reflection. And as God makes you aware of those things, I'd invite you just to surrender them the same way Moses threw down his staff, just to surrender those things. And then as you receive communion in those open, um, kind of vulnerable spots in your own heart, let the agape love of Christ fill you. Let the bread and the wine fill you in that place. And be reminded of your calling as a person, as a child of God. So on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he handed it to his dearest friends and he said, this is my body and it's been broken for you. And in a similar way, he took the cup and he poured out the wine and he said, this is the blood of the covenant shed for your sins. And then he said, as often as you come together and you eat this bread and you drink this blood of the new covenant, as often as you do this, which was often, remember me. Remember the kind of God I am, which is a God who is infinitely for your good, willing your good. Let's pray together. Jesus, we come before you as children uh, very aware of our need, very aware that um, we have been called to do this thing that is hard, that the transformation of our own souls and our own hearts is beyond our ability to achieve on our own. And so God, as we come to your table as your children, we open ourselves up now to receive from you that which will change us, that which will make us whole, that which will make us new. And not only that, but that which will send us out into the world different. 
God, thank you that there is no end to which you wouldn't go in order to make us whole. We receive these gifts from you with grateful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.